Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 28, The Truth About Cholesterol. Good cholesterol? Bad cholesterol? Decades of unclear and misinterpreted science have led to widespread misunderstanding of this vital component of every cell in our bodies. Join the Insulin IQ team and special guest, Dr. Brett Schur, as we distill down what you need to know about cholesterol. This is fun. It's, and I hope the viewers appreciate this. I'm, I'm certainly will. So Brett, uh, Dr. Brett Schur, by way of introduction, I consider him a friend and a, and a colleague in a way in that we're all uh, we are both travelers uh, in this space, uh, trying to learn more. And, and I will say this not to diminish his credentials, which are unique from mine, but we're, we're both scientists in that we're both trying to discover truth. Uh, now, by way of formal introduction, um, Dr. Brett Schur is a board-certified cardiologist and lipidologist. So this, this topic of cholesterol really falls um, directly within his wheelhouse. He currently runs a preventive cardiology telemedicine practice where anyone who wants to learn more about the practice or explore his um, uh, being a patient with him, I encourage you to go to lowcarbcardiologist.com. As a part of his expertise and why you would want him as a physician in this regard is that he's, he completed a preventive cardiology fellowship at the very good Scripps Clinic in San Diego and has been in practice for over 15 years working with people to treat and prevent heart disease. Beyond the clinic, which I appreciate, I always appreciate people wanting to go a little beyond where their profession says they should stay. He is the medical director at dietdoctor.com, which is one of the best resources and, and perhaps the biggest resource available for people online um, to get information about uh, low-carb diets. Uh, his, his, so beyond this, uh, explicitly his medical director role at dietdoctor.com, um, where he also hosts 
the Diet Doctor podcast. He's also an author of a very well-received book entitled Your Best Health Ever, The Cardiologist's Surprisingly Simple Guide to What Really Works. In general, if I were to sum up what, um, what Dr. Schur believes, it's that a low-carb nutrition and lifestyle, uh, these are interventions that can genuinely make significant impacts in improving people's health and in, in increasing just general productivity in life. Uh, he's also an advocate of scrutinizing the available evidence with, what, with regards to nutritional research, the limitations, what, um, what are the interpretations that ought to come from what has been published. But ultimately, Brett is not, um, he's not dogmatic. He thinks that there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all um, when it comes to nutrition, that it needs to be an individualized and sustainable um, dietary program for, for people. Now, again, I've mentioned the website where people that are interested in his work as a clinician can go to lowcarbcardiologist.com and then also the dietdoctor.com site and the Diet Doctor YouTube channel. And we'll have links for these in our show notes. Now, that is a wonderful and justified introduction. And then, Brett, to get into the, to the matter at hand, um, in fact, let's start with what Jack introduced. He'd mentioned good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. What, what is the truth or the fallacy in that overall um, view? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that introduction, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. And that, that is a great place to start. You know, even when I was in medical school and residency, LDL was the bad cholesterol, HDL was the good cholesterol. And it brings up this concept that there are two different types of cholesterol in your body, one that hurts you and one that helps you. And that is completely not true. And maybe that wasn't the intention of labeling good and bad, but that's certainly the, the image it portrays. And I couldn't fault anybody for thinking that because we perpetuated that, we being the medical community of sort of perpetuated that myth for decades. And really there is just cholesterol, period. Cholesterol is sort of one thing in your body and it is crucial for your life. Without cholesterol, you would not be able to live. But cholesterol can't just move around in your body um, by itself because it's, um, it's, you know, it's like oil and water basically. Yeah. They don't mix, right? So instead cholesterol has to be housed in these lipoproteins, which are the, the carrier molecules they carry around. And one of those is an LDL particle and one of those is an HDL particle. It's the same cholesterol in each one. They're just different. The particles are different sizes and they function a little bit differently, but the cholesterol is the same. Now, the reason why LDL is considered bad cholesterol and HDL good cholesterol is because way back in the early days of cholesterol research, they found those who had low levels of HDL cholesterol had a higher risk of heart disease. Therefore, HDL must be good and be protective. And those who had a higher level of LDL had a higher level of heart disease, therefore LDL must be bad. Now, as with any sort of initial observational research, this is for the general population, right? So you get this big bell curve where the average is where you're basing your conclusions on, but there are definitely people on either end. There are a number of people who this, this um, finding or assumption doesn't apply to, but it's on average in the general population. And I think that's really important to emphasize because when you say, you know, what is the truth about cholesterol? That's such an interesting question. And it sounds so simple, but there really isn't a truth. You know, that you can say for millions of people what the average is, but what we want to know, what I want to know as a clinician 
is what's the truth or what's the issue for the patient on the scene today? And what you probably want to know as an individual out there is what is the truth for me as an individual? And that's where we have to get into much more detail. And this whole concept of good cholesterol, bad cholesterol really doesn't help further that conversation. In fact, I think it hinders it because it makes it yeah. so black and white. And, you know, people like simple things. We like enemies and we like good guys, but when it comes to health, it's not that simple. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The, the truth is it lies in the middle. So the, the idea that, so the, the statement itself, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, that's just false on its, on its face. There's just nothing justifiable there. And as you pointed out, it's really more a matter if there's any validity to that, it's really what are, what is the lipoprotein? And I want to get into that in a moment, but you'd mentioned the, the foundation of the lipid heart hypothesis, which again, we'll dive into is really this based on these observations, emphasis on the word observation, that there would tend to be, well, there was this coincidental pattern of, of cholesterol lipoproteins where people who were, had more heart disease would tended to have higher LDL and or lower HDL. Now were those, that phenomenon, those two occurring together may be a coincidence, but nevertheless, would you say that high LDL and low HDL are simply markers of an overall problem rather than being the problem itself when it comes to cholesterol and heart disease? Yeah, that, that's a great, great question and such a hot topic because we hear this term that LDL is causal of heart disease. And the cardiovascular community, the lipid community has really embraced that, that LDL is causal. And I have a little bit of a hard time accepting that on face value. I mean, I think there's no question LDL is involved in the process, but there are so many other things involved in the process of developing cardiovascular disease. So whether it's, you know, you can look at the graphs of people admitted for heart attacks and the graphs of sort of where their cholesterol falls. And you would expect everybody's LDL cholesterol would be sky high when they're admitted for a heart attack and there'd be nobody with normal or low cholesterol admitted for a heart attack if LDL was the most important cause of effect. And that's not what you see at all. In fact, there was this great study years ago at a UCLA showing the majority of the people admitted for heart attacks had LDLs of 130 and below, which, mm -hmm. which at the time was really considered normal for people without many risk factors and not that many in the higher, um, the higher levels of LDL. And then other factors, like you see people with type two diabetes and high blood pressure, with low LDL, having heart attacks, having cardiovascular disease. So it's clear there's so much more involved. In fact, there was a, a study recently published, the Women's Health Study. It was um, an evaluation of the study that had gone on for a couple of decades. And what they looked at when they first enrolled these women, uh, they collected all this data, and then they followed them for years and decades to see who had heart attacks. And they were able to find the biggest predictors of um, when people had these factors at baseline, what was most likely to predict the progression or the development of, of heart disease. And LDL was on the list. It was at like a 1.6 risk or something like that. But type two diabetes was a risk of a 10, the 1.6 versus 10. And this, this marker of insulin resistance was at a, a risk of six. So it's not that LDL has, has no implication in cardiovascular disease. I would never say that. It's clearly involved in the process. But when we talk about what's the truth about cholesterol, I think putting it in perspective really helps people kind of understand the truth for them in terms of what might be more important. And certainly based on this one study, the Women's Health Study, type 2 diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, all of those factors 
had a much stronger impact on the risk of developing cardiovascular disease than LDL. Again, LDL was on the list. It was just mm -hmm. much lower down. So I think we need to sort of put things in a little bit better perspective to say, is LDL causal or is it involved and what else is involved that we can address? Yeah. In fact, Brett, let's, let's take one step back quickly. When I, when I speak with clinicians and they will speak of the evils of saturated fat, they do so because of the idea that you eat more saturated fat and your cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol will go up. That of course is not a universal phenomenon whatsoever. I know Jeff Volick um, years ago published a paper finding this sort of, they could really manipulate the LDL based on how they were manipulating the carbs and fat in the context of a low carb diet. And it didn't go the way many would have predicted. Nevertheless, when I'm speaking with clinicians and they're extolling the evils of saturated fat, I, I will sometimes, um, when it's my turn to speak, I'll say, tell me please, what is the actual um, process of the, the origins of an atherosclerotic plaque? Because of course that's the, that's the fear, right? Of cholesterol. The fear is, and, and the, the dogmatic belief um, is that, that fats, cholesterol among them, but I even know chemistry professors who will talk about saturated fats themselves. It's such a fundamental lack of understanding of the physiology of the fat. They understand the chemical structure of a fat. Nevertheless, they'll talk about how the fats are just somehow spontaneously accumulating within the, a blood vessel wall. And that's the reason they're afraid of, afraid of cholesterol is that it's accumulating and now you have a plaque. That's, that, of course, is very simplistic, but it also is just a theory, right? I mean, Brett, what is the, what is the prevailing theory? And, and maybe let's start with um, what is the prevailing theory in your field as a cardiologist and lipidologist? And, and then maybe what is your spin on that theory of the, the yeah. kind of lipid heart hypothesis? Well, I think, I think it's clear when you talk about atherosclerosis, it starts with a vascular injury. The, the, there is some injury or some, some, of damage to the vessel wall, that there's then this healing response. Um, and that response can include macrophages and these, these immune cells and the inflammatory cells and involve LDL. And you can get this constellation that produces uh, a plaque and progressive plaque, which could then rupture and that causes heart disease. So the theory is that LDL contributes to that. But the question I have is, well, does LDL contribute to the, the damage or is LDL you know, a response to the damage, it's the fire versus the firemen, right? You don't, mm -hmm. you don't want to get rid of all the firemen because you think they cause fires because they're found at every fire. Well, is that the same for LDL? I, I think, I think that also is a little simplistic, just as saying LDL causes heart disease is a little simplistic. It's, you know, both, um, both viewpoints need a little more nuance. So I think there's no question LDL is involved, but here's the other thing. What do we mean when we say LDL? Do we mean small dense LDL? Do we mean oxidized and inflamed LDL? Do we mean LDL in this environment of um, advanced glycolated end products, like with you know too much blood sugar or uh, with too much inflammation and, and, and insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia? You know, are we talking about LDL in that setting, or are we talking about LDL in the setting with normal blood pressure and large buoyant LDL and normal blood sugar, and normal insulin? Those are completely different scenarios with completely different risks. So to say there's one you know, lipid heart hypothesis where the, where LDL cholesterol plays the same role to the same degree across the board is, just, is, is far too mm -hmm. um, basic of a concept. And, you know, people, people will, will take these basic concepts and these images and try and promote their own agenda. Like there's, 
you know, a cardiologist out there who says, I've never scooped out sugar from anybody's uh, arteries. Yeah. And like, come on, what does that even mean, right? Like, it, it's this concept that you eat fat and fat goes straight to your arteries and clogs your arteries. That's the, and sugar doesn't do that, right? But that is, that just has nothing to do. That's just completely ignoring biochemistry and physiology and biology. That it, it doesn't work that way, but it, it conjures up this image that people think, oh no, I can't eat fat because it's going to clog my arteries. And that's part of the concern or a big part of the concern of saturated fat, that it automatically means high LDL and automatically means plaque. And that evidence does not exist. That's, yep. that's an extrapolation from population data that's showing on average, people who eat more saturated fat have higher LDL. But on average, those people also have metabolic dysfunction and high insulin, and they're eating a high carb and high calorie and high saturated fat diet. So that's one specific situation that does not apply to everybody. Now, if you eat a low carb diet and you're metabolically healthy and high and have high saturated fat, that's a completely different scenario. And we have lots of emerging evidence showing that that is not harmful, in fact, can reduce overall cardiovascular risk, again, on average. Um, so that evidence is starting to catch up with not the same, um, I guess, extent that we have for the general population evidence. But um, you know, more of bad evidence doesn't make it any better. It just makes it more, more yeah. bad evidence. So we have to be careful about how we interpret that. Yeah. So, uh, Brett, a few things that come from that description, which was great. Uh, for, you'd mentioned that the, according to the, our understanding of, of the development of an atherosclerotic plaque, and, and we should emphasize that, that this isn't, we don't know, you know, that, that people speak about these things in such absolutes uh, as, if, as if we know and, and it's settled. But the fact is we don't really know exactly the step-by-step -step process of, of the, the development, the birth and, and the growth of an atherosclerotic plaque. But you'd mentioned, I think there is broad consensus that there is some injury, there's some insult to the vascular, um, to, to the blood vessel. What, what, are, what might some of those be? What, do you know, what would be some of the origins of some of those vascular insults that would start, that would pull the trigger or light the fuse? And now you have all these other components like say cholesterol or lipoproteins and macrophages accumulating in that space, mm -hmm. but they're, they're a response to this insult. What are some of the insults? Yeah. Great question. Well, high blood pressure is definitely one of them. I mean, if you think of... So that would be just the sheer stress, right? Right. Just the, the stress on the arteries itself. Just pressure, pressure, pressure. Every time your heart beats over time, over, you know, years and decades. And interestingly, you can see that there are parts of the artery that tend to develop plaque more often than others. So you use the word shear stress. So, you know, at branch points where the flow is not so laminar. So laminar flow of blood yep. is uh, in one straight direction. If it's more turbulent flow, if it, you know, sort of branches or if it's yeah, bifurcation. Yeah. 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 That's where uh, you frequently will see plaque develop more often because of those flow characteristics. And so you, know, you can think of it like a, like a hose. If, um, if you're having, you know, something hitting the wall of the hose, it may start to weaken time and time again. Um, so that, that's certainly one, one, um, in one mechanism of injury. And then if there's generalized inflammation or certainly any, any vascular inflammation that can weaken the walls as well. And that can, that can cause a rush of these other cells that interestingly are meant to be healing cells, but it's sort of like a healing process um, gone awry that it can then start to contribute to vascular damage. 
um, you know, these healing cells, these macrophages and monocytes, they're meant to be healing cells, but they actually can cause plaque formation. So it's, it's, our body wasn't necessarily designed to develop plaque, right? Our body was designed to try and heal injury, but that can actually further things, uh, further the injury in the wrong circumstances. You know, why, and you could also say, well, why does type two diabetes cause vascular disease? Um, it's a blood sugar issue. How does that hurt the blood vessels? Well, too much blood sugar hurts blood vessels. And, and, you know, that's again, part of the process. Um, and when the cells have these glycated end products from too much yep. glucose being on it, then they can become more troublesome to the, to the um, blood vessels themselves. So it, it, it's a much more complicated process. And again, than a lot of people like to make it out to be. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you'd mentioned inflammation. Once again, that's a broad uh, consensus across all views of the origins of atherosclerosis. And that, that prompts me to mention something I'd seen some time ago, noting that when they, would, when they were actually biopsying or, or, or somehow obtaining components of that atherosclerotic plaque, among all the lipid components and all the immune cells like macrophages that you mentioned, they noted multiple different types of bacteria, infectious bacteria. And that, that has led to some stating that atherosclerosis, the origins are um, a result of bacterial infections. Is that something you've heard or seen in practice? You know, I've, I've definitely heard it. Um, it's in cardiology, it's always thought of as like a fringe hypothesis that doesn't have a lot of backing, but there are, there are definitely are studies. If you go digging for, for studies to support it, there are studies to support it. It hasn't been accepted, um, as well in cardiology mm -hmm. and, you know, it's because maybe the evidence isn't as strong as it otherwise um, is for other components like high blood pressure or diabetes yeah. in terms of the association. But the focus also hasn't been there, right? You, you're only going to get more studies if you're doing more studies on the, on the subject. So it's, it's been sort of a, yeah. a little bit of a neglected side of things. Um, but yeah, there, there's some evidence to suggest it. And, you know, what's interesting is um, I think a lot of people would argue, well, look, if all you have is an infection, if all you have is a mycobacterium infection or something, that's not enough to cause the whole plaque, you know, development. Okay, and you can say, okay, but if you have high LDL, is that enough to cause plaque development? But they, yeah. wouldn't, they wouldn't make the same argument against LDL, but the same thing holds true. If all you have is high LDL with nothing else going on in terms of metabolic health and inflammation and blood sugar and lifestyle and what, what else may be that, that there's probably not enough there to say that that is causative, but they would use that argument against bacteria and other, other potential causes. So it is an interesting dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Brett, we've mentioned a couple terms here and let's just define them really well. Cholesterol versus lipoproteins. Mm -hmm. Now, cholesterol is just this kind of waxy lipid molecule that is, it is what it is. Every cell in the body um, needs it. Every cell, I think every cell is making it, maybe the exception of red blood cells. But, but every cell is so dependent on it that we're making cholesterol. And, we, and I'll, we can get into that more in just a moment. But what's the difference then from, so cholesterol is transported on the lipoproteins. And what are the differences in, in function of, of the various lipoproteins? And then what are the, what are, uh, how does that then apply to the clinic where nowadays people are talking about, well, sure, don't get your cholesterol measured, get your LP little a or, you know, your lipoproteins measured why, why is that conversation um, relevant? Yeah. So it used to be, we talked about total cholesterol. And if your total cholesterol was above 200, you know, that's the problem. 
Well, that, that again, it, it just doesn't make any sense because total cholesterol is broken up into LDL, HDL, and triglycerides and remnant particles. And, and there are all these different components that have different roles. And actually, if you look at the ones that are sort of most atherogenic, most problematic is probably the VLDL and the remnants and the LP little a more so than LDL itself. So to get into some of the, the specifics of that, um, I guess you're sorry to get back to your question before I go off on my tangent. So what are the roles of the different lipoproteins? Well, you know, what's interesting is the LDL again is the LDL lipoprotein is not there to kill us and cause heart disease. It's actually there as a potential immune modulator. It's there to deliver um, fat soluble vitamins, to carry fat soluble vitamins and, and triglycerides. And it starts as the VLDL that comes out of our liver, the very low density lipoprotein, which really is um, involved in delivering triglycerides. And, and we can use those triglycerides for fuel, especially if we're living a, living a low carb lifestyle, then we need those VLDLs to transport the triglycerides for fuel. And then as they drop off their cargo, their triglycerides, they change form to eventually become LDL. So it's this whole process. So they, they have a role. Um, and the HDL transports cholesterol back to the liver frequently or between lipoproteins. So HDL sort of, um, you can think of it as the transporter of the, of the cholesterol among different sections. Um, and then, uh, like I mentioned, the triglycerides are fuel. The LP little a is a little bit harder LP little a is like an LDL that's been modified. It's got this big thing called a Kringle. So it's been modified, which makes it more problematic because it's more likely to stay in circulation, more likely to get oxidized and can actually mimic, um, a, you could say a clot forming protein in our body, but it too has a role. Um, the theory is it also works um, for, as an immune modulator and people who have it are maybe less likely to die of infection. Um, so it was a, an, um, something that people developed over time when it, they were more likely to be worried about infection, but can cause problem from a cardiovascular disease. So I guess the, the overall point of this, sorry, little wild answer here is that all these things have purposes, right? They have purposes. They're not just inherently dangerous. And we need to see it that way to say, okay, when are we seeing the beneficial purpose of this? And when has it gone the other way than now we're seeing the negative purpose of these different components? Yeah. Yeah. So you'd mentioned a few things that are relevant here. What are some of the other benefits of, of LDL? LDL is so broadly viewed as the villain. You had mentioned an immune modulator, which I really appreciate you saying. It's something that I think is one of the unsung aspects, um, unheralded aspects of LDL. And that I, I can't, uh, I, I'm, I always show my students one particular study and the title of it is, is um, lost to me at the moment. But where people with the lowest LDL levels, I think were five to 10 times more likely to experience sepsis. So severe life-threatening infections. Um, and, and you would, in fact, elaborate on that for a moment, if you could, Brett. What, what, is, um, what are some of the uh, overlooked benefits of LDL itself as a lipoprotein, as a carrier? You, of course, it's carrying fuel in the form of well, by the time it's LDL, there's less of it, but it is carrying fuel, triglycerides, which is, of course, immensely relevant um, to, to someone who hopes to be burning fat at all. That's really how the muscle is going to get that fat to burn in any other tissue. Um, but, but what are some of the other benefits of, of LDL? 
Yeah, I think I think some of the main ones are it also carries fat soluble vitamins. So uh, you know that's so this is all of them. A, D, E, K. Yep. 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 And, and in the case nowadays, I can't help but be struck by the relevance of vitamin D in viral infections with regards to COVID nineteen. Um, are there evi- is there evidence to to suggest that people with lower LDL levels have a higher um, risk or, or, or should be more cautious with viral infections in general and perhaps COVID-19 as an example? Not that I'm aware of. And, and that's one of the interesting things about saying LDL is involved in, in immune response, which it is. I mean, that's a very true statement. We, and there are some studies to suggest a higher risk of infection with lower LDL or a lower risk of infection with higher LDL, but that's not uniform, which I think is so interesting. And here's where you get into the whole problem of, of this sort of clinical significance, right? Because LDL has been um, implicated in um, low LDL being associated with higher risk of cancer, low LDL associated with higher risk of respiratory infections. But in any one study, it's not, um, it's not a robust finding. And um, it may not even be statistically significant finding in many studies. But here's what's so interesting. You can find studies that show LDL, um, lowering LDL reduces cardiovascular mortality, but not overall mortality. And again, not all studies show that it even reduces cardiovascular mortality, but those that do frequently do not show a reduction in all-cause mortality. So that's going to make you sort of scratch your head and say, well, wait a second, if it's reducing cardiovascular mortality, but not all-cause mortality, does that mean it's increasing some other mortality that's balancing it out? And there's not a clear signal to say, yes, infectious mortality goes up or cancer mortality goes up or neurodegenerative mortality goes up. But if it's a small signal in all three of these that's offsetting the cardiovascular risk, we've got to be open to that possibility. And this is where the data gets a little, um, a little bit messy. And you can say, well, look, if, if the data we have is predominantly from pharmaceutical companies producing statin drugs or cholesterol-lowering drugs, the trials are designed in a way that's going to show maximum benefit and minimal risk. I mean, you can design a trial in certain ways. And if it's, you know, you can see that most of them being funded by the pharmaceutical industry are designed in ways to maximize benefit. So that's a problem when most of our data comes from that type of a, of a study. And we really do need better data in terms of the risks of lowering cholesterol and the benefits of having higher cholesterol. You know, why is it that numerous studies in the elderly show higher cholesterols associated with lower mortality? Well, the one, the one argument is, well, it's a sign of health that, that as you start to become frail and ill, that LDL tends to go down. Well, there, some of those studies said, okay, well, let's exclude anybody who died within one year of the study beginning. And so then we'll sort of weed those people out. And the findings still hold true that in the elderly, higher LDL, people tend to live longer. Is that because the LDL is protective? Is it because it's some other association? You know, those studies don't prove that one way or the other, but it certainly highlights the point that, that LDL cholesterol is not all bad, just like, you know, HDL maybe isn't all good mm-hmm. or um, it, it's, yeah, they play roles and we have to be aware of that and be worried more about the overall environment that the LDL is working in rather than the LDL itself. Yeah, in fact, well said. Yeah, just like we, the evidence isn't sufficient to, to blame LDL for causing heart disease, we shouldn't say that that counter evidence that you just mentioned, the observation that those with the higher LDL tend to live longer, 
we shouldn't say that it's because of the LDL. It might be reflective of just an overall metabolic milieu that, that is either good or bad. And LDL is just maybe a reflection of that to some degree or not at all. And it's just doing what it does. So you'd mentioned statins. Of course, that's one of the most, you'd know better than me. I believe it's one of the most widely prescribed dr drugs in the world. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Even yeah. even to the point that some are such advocates that they, I, I believe there was a physician in the UK who claimed that it should be in the drinking water, which seems a little a little bold. I will never forget um, sitting in a meeting here, a, a department seminar, well, a college seminar, actually, we had a scientist, a PhD come, and he studies drug metabolism, you know, the clearance of drugs. And I will never forget that talk, not because of the content, but how he introduced it when he talked about statin metabolism. He stated that statins are among the safest drugs in the world with the least side effects. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, brother. Yeah where there are side effects, but let's, let's talk about statins just for a moment because they are so commonly used. When, in your mind, when are statins justified? And I don't, of course, none of this is clinical or, or medical advice, but so insofar as you're comfortable talking on that topic, when are statins justified? Yeah, so I, I, can, I can clearly make the statement, in my practice, I use statins often. And that's because in my clinical practice, I see a lot of people who have established heart disease. So people who have had heart attacks, have had stents, have had bypass surgery. Um, I think statins can play an important role. Now, it's not the most important treatment. It's not, here's your statin, you're good, see you later. It's okay, let's look at your overall risk, all the different components of your life and your health that are at risk and attack each one. And statins may have a role there because the studies, there are, there are numerous, numerous studies, dozens, if not hundreds of studies that show statins can reduce the risk of future heart attacks for people who have already had a heart attack. Now, here's where it gets more interesting, though, is how much does it reduce the risk, right? You might hear 40%, 50%, 30%, and those are the relative risks, right? So if your risk was 1% and now it's a half a percent, that's a 50% risk, right? Or is it a half a percent risk, the absolute risk? So this is where trying to put it into perspective is really important. So I tell my patients, I'm like, look, statins, if you've had a heart attack, you've had bypass surgery, you've had stents, statins are part of the guidelines and for good reason, because the studies show there's a decreased risk of future events with the statin. But just be clear, it doesn't reduce your risk by 50%, right? It might reduce your risk by half of a percent or 1% over five years. That's not nothing. Right? Certainly for general population, that's very important. For you, is that important? That's for you to decide and for me to try to help you answer your questions and give you the information to provide you with the ability to make that decision. Um, but it's definitely part of the treatment program. But so is making sure your blood pressure is better and your blood sugar is better and your visceral fat is better and your insulin level is better um, and your inflammatory markers come down. Those are equally as important, if not more important than the statin. So, um, so that's the long way of saying I definitely think statins are, are a useful component, especially in secondary prevention, secondary meaning you've already had an event. The problem comes for primary prevention, where we say, you know, we can widely use statins, put it in the water, give it to anybody who has a high risk, you know, use these calculators. And if your number's above a certain point, you get a, a statin automatically. That's, that's using it, the shotgun approach rather than sort of the laser, the laser approach. And I prefer the laser approach. I prefer to find the people at the highest risk who can't modulate that risk in other ways, 
um, that then you would consider statin. I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen where they come to me and they say, look, my doctor put my numbers through this calculator. I was at an 8% risk. And so they say, therefore, I need a statin. What should I do? We work on their lifestyle for three months, do the same calculation, and now their risk is 2.5%, right? So they never would have even been a candidate in the first place if only you would have worked on their lifestyle, worked on their other risk factors, and all of a sudden you wouldn't even enter the statin debate. But we're in a medical society where the, the reaction is, here's your prescription, because it's quick, it's easy, it gets the numbers down, you know, you think, quote, unquote, everybody's happy. And again, if the side effects were improving your blood sugar, losing weight, making you feel better, helping you exercise more, increasing, increasing your mental capacity, if those were the side effect of the medications, okay, sign me up, I'm in. But they're not, right? The side effects are you can get muscle aches. Um, you know, you, it can cause insomnia, you know, it can, um, it can worsen your blood sugar control and, and, and worsen your insulin resistance and cause diabetes. Like, those are real potential side effects that we need to be aware of. So no, it should not be in the water. And yes, you should be monitored incredibly closely when you're on these medications. And you should be doing everything else in your lifestyle to potentially counteract those side effects and improve those other aspects of your health, which also impact it. So, so yes, statins have a role. Um, I, I think the role has been greatly overplayed in medicine today. But I also think the people who say statins are poison and should never be used and have zero role there, I think they are equally wrong. Um, they have a role, we just have to be more purposeful about what that role is and who, who will benefit. Yeah, well, well said. I think that you, your comments there really do reflect your, your stated effort to make healthcare and certainly lifestyle changes very uh, personalized and, and custom. Uh, you'd mentioned inflammation, and I recall a study where the, the authors were positing might the benefits of statins be because of their this this anti-inflammatory effect? Now, I confess, I don't know the mechanism whereby a statin would be anti-inflammatory, but I believe the evidence was they gave them, they noted that C-reactive protein, which is, of course, a prominent not now oft-used clinical marker of inflammation, was much more highly correlated with heart disease than LDL was. And they noted that when they gave patients statins, CRP, C-reactive protein, went down considerable and, and considerably. And they, again, their view was that perhaps the heart disease mitigating effects of statins are a result of the anti-inflammatory effects rather than the anti-LDL. Is that some, can, can you speak to that? Is that something you've seen? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the most famous um, statin trials called the Jupiter trial, which was really used to say um, that one of the big conclusions from sort of the cardiovascular community was See, statins are effective in primary prevention um, and, and therefore should be used more often. But the key is to be enrolled in that trial, you had to have elevated CRP. And when you looked at the outcomes, those who got the biggest outcomes were those whose CRP went down. If their CRP was up and stayed up and you were on a statin, you didn't get the same benefit as those whose CRP mm. came down. So I would say, well, wait a second, uh, time out. Are we saying this is an LDL effect? Or are we saying this is an inflammatory effect? Because to me, that looks a lot like an inflammatory effect, anti-inflammatory effect, more than a, an LDL-reducing effect. So yes, it's this, these pleiotropic effects of statins. The other thing they've been shown to do, um, mostly in animal trials um, and sort of histopathological, histopathological um, analysis, is that they can stabilize plaque. So if you have plaque in your artery, again, not all plaque is the same. It's this what we call this necrotic lipid-laden core that's more likely to rupture and cause a heart attack. Well, statins can help 
kind of the coating of that core, so to speak, be a little more, a little thicker and less likely mm -hmm. um, to rupture and change the contents of the core. So it's less likely to rupture. So that's not necessarily because of its effect on the LDL. That sounds more like an anti-inflammatory effect, reducing the inflammation, making it less of a hot plaque. So the, there are these other effects of statins. And, and that's why I think in secondary prevention, they can be very helpful. And you're not even really treating the LDL at that point. You're treating inflammation, plaque stabilization, and maybe LDL is just along for the ride in that setting. Yeah. Now you'd mentioned, let's define a couple terms. In fact, I meant to do this a moment ago. You'd mentioned primary versus secondary. Now I'm not a clinician. From what I, how I understand those terms, primary is a situation where someone has blood lipids that suggest they're at an increased risk of heart disease, but they've never had one. So that, right, would that be considered primary that you got the blood yeah, work and it looks like it's bad. So now we'll give you statins versus right, secondary. The easy differentiation is whether you've had heart disease already, some evidence of it, or you haven't. So if you have your secondary prevention, because you've already had a heart attack, a stent, a yep. bypass, something has happened. So now you're trying to prevent a secondary event. Whereas primary is you haven't had any events, you're just trying to prevent your first event or your first development of heart disease. So that's primary prevention. Yeah. So that's yep. whether you've had the disease or not, basically. Okay, good. Now, it, it, with regards to primary prevention, I recall a study that noted the differences in mortality as a uh, looking at statins as a primary prevention tool, but it really depended on the coronary artery calcium score. Is this so a CAC scan that, that we're, of, we're certainly advocates of? Can you maybe one, give us a definition of what the CAC scan is doing or measuring and then speak to the truth or the fallacy of what I just stated. Should CAC be uh, scrutinized or considered when statins are then going to be considered as a primary prevention. Yeah, great point. Great point about calcium scores. So what a calcium score looks at, it's a, it's a low um, dose, low radiation dose CAT scan of your heart. And it looks for calcium in the walls of the artery. And it's an important differentiation because if you think of the artery as like a hose, and I can try and hold my hand out here, you think of it as a hose and there's, you know, the water in the middle and then the plastic part around the edge. Well, your blood vessel is the same, right? The blood flow in the middle and you have the muscular wall around the edge. Well, all the calcium score shows you is calcium in the wall of the artery. So that's not what causes heart attacks. That's not what causes angina. That's not the same as plaque in the middle, but it's a, it's a marker to show there's been some sort of vascular damage and a calcific healing response in the wall of the artery. And that's a starting point for plaque formation. So that's what the calcium score can show you. And and there's good data that the higher the calcium score, the higher the risk in, in the next 10 years of developing a cardiovascular event, heart attack being the main one. Um, but the flip side is also true because a calcium score of zero is a very good negative predictor. Negative predictor meaning the chances of developing a disease in the next 10 years is very low. Right? Um, so calcium scores have become more prominent if someone's on the fence um, of starting a statin or doesn't want to start a statin and wants more information or just wants to get a better evaluation of your overall cardiovascular risk, a calcium score of zero, really, there's almost no benefit to starting a statin. And there was one study um, from, Wal from Walter Reed Medical Center that looked at different levels of calcium scores, those who take a statin and those who don't take a statin over the next 10 years, what are the risks? And if you look at the calcium score of zero, you see this one line, or more like this probably, one line like this in terms of your risk over 10 years. 
there are really two lines there, the people who took the statins and the people who didn't take the statins, but they're exactly superimposed because there's no difference. zero difference. Zero difference if you got a statin, if your calcium score was zero in that study, right? So again, then you have to say who's in, enrolled in the study, what were their other risk factors, et cetera. So this was primary prevention. But it, it speaks to the power of zero. And that's something you hear people who promote calcium scores say a lot, the power of zero. So I'm a huge fan of calcium scores, especially for primary prevention where you have high LDL and you're in good metabolic health and your HDL is high, your triglycerides are low, your blood pressure is good. And they come to me saying, hey, my doc wants to put me on a statin. I say, let's get a calcium score. If it's zero, that completely changes the discussion as opposed to if it's 600, right? Those are two completely different discussions. So I think, I, I think it's an underused tool. Now, where you can get in trouble though, is a score of say 200, right? For someone who has had type two diabetes and eating the standard American diet and not exercising for the past 20 years. And for the past four months, they've gone on a low carb diet and sort of reversed all that. And then they get their first ever calcium score of 200. And their doctor says, see, I told you this low carb diet's killing you. You have a calcium score of 200. And it's like, well, wait a second. What's more likely to do that? The, the four months of the low carb diet or the 20 years of type two yeah. diabetes and, and standard American diet, right? So there's no timestamp on when that calcium was laid down. So you, you know, you have to interpret it with a little uh, rational thinking, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear that that's what you do in practice. So beyond statins, and, and to shift the, and this will be some of my concluding thoughts, and Rich and Carly, I'll, I'll certainly welcome any um, final um, questions or comments from you guys. What would be, um, so statins focus on this, this kind of cholesterol-centric paradigm of heart disease. What other drugs do you think are worth scrutinizing, whether they are cholesterol related or not, um, when it comes to this fight against heart disease, which is after all the number one killer in the US mm -hmm. uh, and why people are afraid or just talk about cholesterol at all. Yeah, well, so that's interesting. I mean, you phrase it, which drugs um, require scrutiny? And, and I would say which, you know, which foods and which exercise and well stress said, management yeah. techniques and you know, which of those require scrutiny because that's where I think the discussion should start. But, you know, look, I was in the same point, you know, at, 15 years ago, you think it's hard to get people to change their lifestyle. It's easy to write a prescription. And when you're a busy doc and you're just seeing patient after patient, you sort of become a little skeptical that anybody's going to make any lifestyle changes. So you default to the prescription pad. And that's the worst attitude I think any doctor can have. It's not giving the patient the benefit to really help themselves. And that's what I think deserves the most scrutiny. Yeah, well when said. it comes to, to, to cholesterol medications, you know, I'm a big fan of medication called Zetia, which works more on sort of like a cholesterol absorption and has nothing to do with the production of it and sort of um, indirectly can, can increase the number of LDL receptors or the PCSK9 inhibitors, which directly affect the LDL receptors. And what I like about those more is it, 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 your body can still create and produce as much cholesterol as it needs. And you're not blocking the production of the other things that your body normally would be doing. Like, you know, one of the biggest one is CoQ10 goes down dramatically yeah. with, with statins because you're cutting off this sort of production, um, production line. And it's not just cholesterol, the only thing that's part of that production line. There are other things as well that you are shutting down. So, so I like working on the receptors more than I like working on the um, production, at least production. from a yeah. mechanistic standpoint. Um, but again, you know, even though I like those medications a little bit more, 
Um, they're more expensive, you know, they haven't been around as long, but there also don't seem to be as many side effects either from those. So I think they deserve a little bit more attention when you're treating somebody um, that maybe a statin isn't the right choice for. But again, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle first. There's so many things that we can yeah. do to reverse risk in the first place where you wouldn't even consider a drug after you know, two, four, six months of an of a intensive lifestyle intervention that reduces insulin, that reduces metabolic syndrome, that reduces blood pressure, that all of a sudden, you know, medical therapy is no longer needed. And I think that's where doctors really need to focus their attention. Yeah, well said. It, 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 the, the drug route really does represent the path of least resistance for both clinician and patient, right? Because yeah. not only is the physician, if it's a lifestyle-based intervention, the physician is asking the patient to do something the patient might not want to do, right. but it also represents more, I would imagine, not being a clinician, but trouble for the clinician, where the clinician, one, has to have spent the time outside of medical school and training because they wouldn't have gotten it there. Right. They have to have spent their own time um, getting familiar with this, uh, but then actually testing it out on themselves to have that kind of conviction. I, I don't know that there'd be any physician who would do it otherwise in the absence of that sort of personal conviction, uh, but then take the time. And, and that I think is um, part of the problem with conventional medicine. Time is money. Um, to the to the physician, they don't have the liberty of sitting in their ivory tower of academia like I do and ask themselves, well, "What should I do today?" It's it's really if I'm not seeing patients, I'm not getting paid, and that's of course a very real concern. And it takes time, right? If you just write a prescription, you're done in five minutes, you know, or I would imagine. But to actually have a conversation of lifestyle, that's something a physician might not be trained to do, might not want to take the time to do, and then maybe just to have a blatant plug. That's where there really is room for a third party like diet doctor and insulin IQ, where it's, it's almost a statement to the physician, look, you don't have to do this, just send them to us. Right. Such a great comment. I, I think that comment is so important. Um, and, and so true, right? Because if, if the doctor feels like they are responsible for all the health coaching and nutrition coaching and explaining everything to the patient, they're going to, you know, they don't have the time or the experience, or maybe even the interest for that. But if instead, they had a health coach working with them, or a place they could send them where they can get that coaching, so the doctor doesn't have to do it, but the patient is still getting it, and getting it from experts who know how to motivate people and influence people and know about behavior change, and know about the specifics of nutrition and exercise, and when you might want to start with, you know, one component of a diet or one type of exercise, or whatever the case may be, knowing how to target it for an individual or a group of individuals. That is a hard ask for most doctors. I, yeah. I've got to be honest with that. And, and look, I was fortunate enough that I, I was interested enough to learn about all this on my own, but I see a lot of my colleagues are not. Um, and so that's difficult. So you hit that right on the nail, right on the head. So important. It, it's so much better that these other avenues exist where people can get that information and can get coaching and can get um, a little more help with behavior change, which is hard. But also, you know, you have to be a bit of a salesman or a salesperson about that. If, you, if you're like, yeah, look, I mean, you can improve your lifestyle and your diabetes, but it takes a lot of effort and it's kind of hard to do. Or you could take this pill, you know, it's yeah. like, all right, so I'll take the pill. As opposed to, sure, you could take this pill, which, you know, has potential side effects and you'll probably be dependent on the rest of your life and it won't really fix the underlying problem. Or we can make these changes and do it in a stepwise manner 
So you can make small changes to build upon to get to bigger changes where eventually you're going to reach your goal and you can reverse your diabetes. You can lose 50 pounds. You can lower your blood pressure all with these lifestyle changes that I can show you how to get to that you'll eventually be able to do on your own, like it's secondhand. I mean, that's like the same situation, but two drastically different conversations, right? And yeah. I, I want the second conversation for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and all the more reason for the physician to have some testament of the, the utility of lifestyle intervention, some conviction. Yeah. Brett, thanks so much. This has been wonderful. Jack, Rich, Carly, in our final moments, any last comments or questions for Brett, who's been yeah. a wonderful guest? I have a couple questions. So if LDL and HDL aren't clear enough predictors um, of heart disease, what would you suggest for clients asking, what do I get tested when I go to the doctor? What do I ask them for? Yeah, well, you definitely want to know your lipid profile, but you want to know your LDL, your HDL, and your triglycerides, and you want to put that all into perspective. It's clear elevated LDL in the presence of low HDL and high triglycerides is a much riskier situation than elevated LDL in the presence of low triglycerides and high HDL, right? So those are two totally different scenarios. So the information's there. You just need to make sure you and your doctor are looking at all the information when you get your lipid panel. You also wanna know your blood sugar, your fasting insulin, uh, your hemoglobin A1C, your CRP, because uh, those are all other risk factors that contribute. You wanna know your lipoprotein little a, because that's a, a riskier version of LDL, you could say. And then you know, th and those are all pretty basic tests that you should be able to get from anyone. Then there are also the advanced lipid testing where you can see the size and density of your LDL, how much are small, small particles, how much are big particles. You can get specific lipid inflammatory markers. Um, you can get insulin resistance scores. There's a whole wealth of other lab tests that you can get that, to be honest, if you're seeing your primary care doctor who's not really up on this, and look, primary care doctors have the hardest job in the world. They need to know about everything, right? They need to know about infections and whether you have your colonoscopies and your breast cancer risk and your eye health. You know, they need to know a little bit about all these things. We can't really expect them to know as much about lipids as, as people who spend their life doing lipids. But as Brett. Um, <laughs> but, then, but there are some direct-to-consumer um, labs now, and actually Dave Feldman has one ownyourlabs.com, I think it is, um, where you can get your own labs too. So you don't, the tide is really interesting that the tide is turning that you're not completely dependent on your physician to get labs. Now you can get this advanced lipid testing and these insulin resistant markers on your own. You, you have to pay for it, of course, but, um, but it's not that there's this barrier that you, you need your physician to get the labs, which I think is really interesting. That's cool. And um, what a, the calcium score, it, do you think that's useful in younger people? like under 40? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, from a population basis, for a population screening basis, getting calcium scores in people under 40 is likely not that beneficial. But again, now we're taking the population and going down to individuals, right? So if someone is a hyper responder and has an LDL of 210 or something, but doesn't have familial hypercholesterolemia, and you want another um, marker of risk in that setting, you know, again, individual, you have to work with your physician, but that setting, I have used calcium scores in younger people also as a time zero stamp, right? Like I said, calcium doesn't have a time stamp on it, but now you've got your time zero. So whether you check it again in one year, five years, 10 years, whatever the case may be, you've got your comparison. So if the score later is, you know, 75 or, you know, 32 or one of these sort of like middle zone scores, 
um, that you're not 100% sure is it a bad sign or is it not, you know what it was previously. So I think it can be helpful in that scenario. And it's important though to factor in age, right? Because a, a calcium score of 50 for a 40 year old is very different than the calcium score of 50 for an 80 year old. Those are very different risk prognostic test results. So um, factoring in age is very important for sure. Okay, cool. Hey, hey Ben and Brett, I got one question for you before we go. Um, and this is something I've, I've read and I've said to my clients before in the terms of our need for cholesterol. If we eat less cholesterol, does our body just simply make more cholesterol and vice versa? Yeah, it's this interesting concept that, you know, cholesterol is predominantly coming from the food we eat. That is, I think, the most popular thought by most people when it comes to um, cholesterol. And it, it's the exact opposite. The overwhelming majority of the cholesterol is produced by our bodies, by our liver, by our cells. The vast minority of cholesterol that we get comes from the food we eat. So you could eat a zero cholesterol diet and you're going to be fine. Your body's going to have plenty of cholesterol. I'm not recommending that. But you could also eat a very high cholesterol diet. And the cholesterol in your blood may change a tiny bit. Um, and that's, you know, one of the interesting things when it comes to these dietary guidelines and, you know, what's risky food, what's dangerous food. It used to be thought dietary cholesterol, so egg yolks, shellfish, that that was, that was very risky and was going to increase your risk of heart disease. Now, it's pretty clear that that is not the case at all. It does not increase your risk of heart disease. And it may increase your cholesterol a little bit, but it actually raises your HDL and your LDL. So the ratios frequently improve uh, or stay the same, even though your cholesterol goes up a little bit. Um, but it's not the harm that it was once thought to be. So luckily, some of these um, organizational bodies have changed their wording a little bit. And the famous word now is cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. Um, whereas before it was sort of on par with saturated fats in terms of what they thought the risk was. Now, maybe someday we'll get to that same statement of saturated fats. I don't know, that might be a harder hurdle. But yes, that the, your body makes all the cholesterol it needs. You don't need to get it from eating cholesterol, but eating more cholesterol does not seem to increase your risk. Thanks, Brett. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Bickman and Brett. We're so grateful for the time that you've uh, spent with us today and, and your preparation for our, our show today. We've had people from all over the world. We had so many questions come in, and we're up against the hour. We're so sorry we, we were not able to get to all the questions that, that came in. But we would like you to go to InsulinIQ.com. You're welcome anytime to hit the chat bubble there, ask us questions. Our team is always available to answer your questions. And, you know, we kind of are proud of our relationship with Diet Doctor. We locked arms with them uh, about a year ago with a lot of their content in our course. We, we utilize a lot of their content. All of our coached clients and all of our premium members are also have Diet Doctor Plus memberships. So we love working with, uh, with Diet Doctor, the number one uh, low-carb knowledge base in the world. And so glad to have you with us, Brett, today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And we are, we are very happy to have this relationship with Insulin IQ as well. We, we love what you're doing, and we're just happy that we can contribute some of our material to help your clients improve their health and improve their lives. Well, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to The Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code.
the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at GetHealth, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.